What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Modern Day Sniper Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Kalen Wojcik, and today I am joined with uh, Philip Vallejo and a special guest, Mr. Cody Carroll. Uh, Cody's been on the podcast before. Uh, we have a really cool episode planned for you guys. We haven't done a whole lot of educational content in a couple of episodes, and I think this is going to uh, shift that big time because Cody's here to talk to us uh, about field craft and uh, how field craft is really important to being a rifleman in general. And so for those of you guys who are first listeners, first time listeners at the Modern Day Sniper podcast, we are a podcast that is dedicated to the craft of being a modern day rifleman. And whether you are a precision shooting enthusiast, a military law enforcement professional, a hunter, or a seasoned competitor, you are most likely just like us. We are constant students of our craft, and this podcast is dedicated to uh, us learning that craft. So without further ado, welcome, Cody. Why don't you uh, give us a rundown on, on where you're at, what you're doing in your life right now, and, and um, what uh, your involvement with Modern Day Sniper is. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, so like Caitlin said, uh, I've been on the podcast before, and then we did a Rifleman Summit last summer, uh, but now I've kind of taken over as a military programs uh, manager or director or whatever. It doesn't really matter. It's just us three, so we don't get wrapped around titles too much here. No. But um, essentially what I've done is I've set up a venue um, that right now it's only really – uh, open to military or LE groups and it's typically because of the well it's really because of the insurance that I carry uh, it doesn't cover civilian classes yet but we have a venue it's on a local dude ranch here in Colorado where we do sniper sustainment packages for sniper units and it's in mountainous terrain and then we also add in uh, mountaineering as part of the curriculum and that covers like basic military mountaineering so rope work rope bridging casualty, uh, evac, and mobility. Uh, that's a big part of the program. Uh, we even tie in animal packing as well. And uh, we have a ton of angles to shoot from. And it's a pretty badass venue. Uh, it's still, still getting built out. And uh, we're hoping to have the first groups on deck this fall. Fantastic. And it sounds like a bushport without uh, green weenie, the green weenie's fingers in it. <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's pretty plush too. It's all inclusive. So you're staying in like a, you get catered meals. So it's like ranch catered meals. So nice. plenty, plenty of hot chow. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's 15 minutes from town, 45 minutes from Rocky mountain national park. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty luxurious. Um, it's a, it's a great way to train if you ask me. Oh yeah. Hot, hot chow and libo. Hell as, yeah. As per. <laughs> it's required. That's, that's why we brought Cody on, man. We, we need, he's the libo master. Um, so part of that though is, is like the field aspect of, of shooting. And it's one thing to learn the stuff on a flat range, but it's another, it's another thing to put it to practice in the field and, for those those guys that are out there that um we get a lot of questions on field craft and and that's a big part of of what we do as as not only a rifleman but you know shooting enthusiasts don't necessarily always apply field craft but obviously the professionals apply field craft and the hunters apply field craft um and so some of the competitors that are out there trying to get into field craft as well it's like what is field craft and 
what do people say? Well, well, we want more field craft oriented courses. Well, what does that even entail? Like, what do you think field craft is, Cody? Like, from from like a holistic standpoint. Really, what field craft is is it's basically the whole adapt, improvise, overcome mentality. Uh, so. Today, you can buy almost anything, right? You can buy something that's ready-made. You can buy a ghillie suit from Walmart. You could buy, you know, uh, all this. You could buy guns that are already pre-seracoded a certain color. Uh, but really, the, the craft aspect side of what we do is actually learning how to make all that yourself. And I think it's important because if you find yourself in that situation where you don't have anything, you have a basic bare-bones rifle, uh, you know how to camouflage it. You know how to build a ghillie suit. You know how to make ropes work for you. You don't need all these fancy climbing tools. Uh, you can just use carabiners and rope. Uh, all that sort of stuff is where it really ties into. Uh, I think it's important to be well-rounded, and field craft really makes you well-rounded. Yeah, I think part of that is is it's understanding that field craft is is it's almost like a, an attention to detail thing, and 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 that attention to detail only comes through lots of experience and being out in those conditions and saying, Oh, I've, I've, I'm experiencing this, this particular situation or this particular circumstance. So how do I, how do I work with that? Or, um, like in, in just basic mountain travel in general, like basic mountain travel, land navigation. A lot of people look at land navigation as a field skill, as a field craft skill. Whereas like where we come from, land navigation is just a given. Like you don't go any farther in your military career, especially in small unit tactics until you've able to master land navigation. If you can't master land navigation, then you can't get to where you have to go. And that's just like the starting point as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, for sure. Land navigation, that's definitely, you know, being able to use a, a map and compass to find out where you are and figure out how to go where you actually need to be is uh, a GPS. This GPS is going to tell me everything that I need to know. Mm -hmm. And really we just use GPSs to spot check our actual location for second guessing ourselves. So GPS is more of a tool that I prefer to use as like a spot check, whether it's night or conditions uh, existed where I may have had to move too fast where I could actually keep up with my map reading to know exactly where I am on the map. Yeah. Utilizing a GPS, I can, I, you know, tying into marksmanship, right? It's like the Kestrel is a good tool to spot check us, but it's not right. It's like you, you have to learn the bare basics of, of, Hey, what is your dope? You know, I talked about this in, in, you know, what it means to be a rifleman. Um, you know, the Kestrels are to spot check you in terms of, Hey, what your dope is, uh, you, you know, where your altitude, because even prior to even going out to, you know, um, let's say a venue, you should already be doing your homework in terms of uh, studying the the terrain. That's what I did on my deer hunt, right? Like, hey, this is the altitude that I'm going to be at. And these are the par uh, parameters of what I'm sending my dope card for. So that when I pulled my Kestrel out, I was like, oh, I'm exactly where I anticipated I was going to be, right? Where you see a lot of shooters, even when I was a, a instructor at cyber school, uh, and when it came to mission week, a lot of times you see students just follow the big green, the big arrow, right, on their uh, on their Fort, uh, uh, Garmin Fortrex 401. And it's like, you know, they have no situational awareness of, you know, route selection or whatsoever. And it's just like, all right, I'm just going to follow this green arrow because it's telling me to go there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
we, I see that too, like with hunters, taking hunters into the mountains with Luke, we see it in the backcountry hunter course as well. Um, you know, for us, we never pull out a map. We just don't pull out maps because we know that we know the area and through basic understanding of like just terrain following and terrain association, you can walk in the dark in the complete darkness without even a headlamp. And like sometimes clients are just like, you guys are freaking crazy. Like you guys, like seriously, whatever you do, don't die. Because if you die, I, I am completely lost. I have no idea where I am and I won't be able to get home. So it, like it, it creates anxiety for people. And uh, as an example, we had one guy that was sitting at camp and you've been up there, Phil, like, you've been where we camp and you know where the watchtower is, right? We had filled his bear tag and we said, um, I was getting ready to step off in the morning. And I said, Hey man, if you want a really cool day hike, it's like, it's like a quarter of a mile. You just walk straight up this hill and you follow the ridge. You can't miss it. it you just, it's a flat pool table ridge and you'll go out to this really cool uh, fire lookout tower and then you just walk, turn around, walk exactly straight line back to camp. You can't miss it. And he was terrified. He was like, Nope, not leaving here. No way. Cause I'll get lost. And this is a dude from Missouri and he's in the mountains of Washington state and he just did not, he was not comfortable in that environment because he, his, his land navigation skills, he wasn't confident in them or he didn't have them to begin with. And so like we, all three of us, that's easy. We take that for granted, but it's a different aspect from somebody that doesn't because once they're in that situation and it's like, it's like primal, it's like a primal thing to go, Oh shit. Like if I get lost out here, this is serious. Like this is a big deal. One of the things that I did when, when I went back country hunting with you, um, for our bear hunt, uh, was gain my bearings immediately, right. Just figuring out where North is and, you know, obviously backtracking, but ultimately like when we did get off the trail, you know, understanding, Hey, this is, you know, in terms of these are my bearings, this is the direction I need to go in the case that somehow mm -hmm. you and I get split up or whatever the case might be. And I know that's going to be the case in the future. Now that I kind of have the lay of the land of, of the blues, at least, um, you know, where you and I would, would split up um, and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, that's just, I just feel like, and, and maybe it's just ingrained in our training, right. From, you know, being a sniper, it's like, Hey, the very first thing, uh, just like stalking, the very first thing that you do when you get off the truck is establish your bearings, right. We're, we're North at, we're South was a truck. Where's my uh, objective at? And, and uh, you know, go from there start making a, start making a, a route for it. So Cody, you've got, you've got a ton of experiences as not only, you know, being, um, being a, a special operations sniper, but you also have a lot of experience as a reconnaissance platoon commander and kind of walk us through what you as a, as in a leadership position identified as, as really core competency tasks that are the baseline for field skills uh, competency, I guess. So, um, you know, one of the, the big things like as a, as a platoon commander that I looked at is like, do I need to resupply these guys all the time? Mm. And <laughs> so to me, that's my core competency test. And I'm not talking about like, Hey, uh, there was a, a guy that was actually in the same company that I was in the other day, he posted this picture, like going out on a two day patrol. And he had fucking 15 liters of water. So that's like 33 pounds of water. Uh, and that's, that was just water. And then he had, you know, like five or six chows or something like that. And I was like, 
dude, I would hate to see what you have to carry on a 10 day patrol. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when, like when it comes to like, Hey, when I'm, when I'm looking for like a competent team and this team get out there to their objective and actually sustain themselves without having to, without having to rely on me to flex assets to keep them fighting or doing their surveillance or the reconnaissance piece. Like what, I guess that's the big thing is, and I'm not trying to say, um, you guys still got me here? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not trying to say like I'm a lazy platoon commander or my platoon sergeant's lazy. We don't want to supply you with shit, but it's the reality of it, right? You know, like go out there on your own. You don't need to carry everything in the kitchen sink on your back. You know, there's, you can move at a pace that's reasonable that doesn't require so many calories where you've got to eat like 6,000 calories a day. And that's part of being a recon guy anyway. You go on a 10-day patrol, you're going to lose like 10 or 15 pounds anyway. Yep. And you just come back and you have hot chap. It's all good. Yep. But, <laughs> you know, having a, you know, a team that actually can go out, sustain themselves and not get compromised and use whatever field craft techniques it takes to build hide sites, uh, personal camouflage, like on their gear, equipment, and themselves, their weapons, and, and actually get the job done get the information back to the rock um, within a timely manner and make their comm windows. Those are, those are all things that tie into field craft. Right. And so the other part of that too, that, that you touched on is, is like really important. It's just basically the individual responsibilities of that particular, the member of the team. There's, there's own Like everybody has, that's onus on everybody. Like you, you're personally responsible for, making sure that your equipment is silenced. You're personally responsible for making sure that your gear is camouflaged. You're personally responsible for making sure that you can move through whatever terrain it is, not only undetected, uh, both visually, um, but from, uh, you know, audible as well. Like don't be stepping on sticks and like watch where you walk and understand that when you're trying to patrol with a hundred pounds on your back, things change and your ability to, to move, changes your ability to move quietly changes and like that is a whole thing that's a whole aspect of field craft is to be able to bring all of that together and and be and be efficient right and and not be a burden like you said like you need to yeah i'm going to resupply you if you need ammunition or if you need something mission critical but if you're calling me up because you don't have water and you didn't properly plan for that then that's that sh- that shouldn't be your problem that should be, that's their problem in the, in the sense of, Hey, where did we screw up in the planning process that required us to, to go down this route to begin with? And that's not just from like, that's one of the reasons I love backcountry hunting so much is as soon as I did my first trip, I, it instantly clicked. And I was like, this is a mission. Like we're just planning a mission and this is either a reconnaissance mission or, or, or a sniper mission. And we have to think about, we have to think all of these steps through, through the mission planning process, which is why it was pretty much a seamless transition. Right. It, when you talk about, uh, you know, having a hundred pound pack, one of the things that I always told the guys is like, you should be at 45 pounds. If you're carrying much more than that, you're going to just, the information that you provide is worthless the patrol is going to be worthless. You know, I've just seen it time and time again where guys go out and they're just, they're, they take all the, they take recon guys pack like fucking women, dude. 
They take everything that they think that they might possibly ever need, you know, like scuba flippers and fucking, you know, <laughs> machine guns, all this shit. And it's like, dude, just plan something and, and be prepared mentally, you know, use your skills if something doesn't go the way that you plan it. Cause we all know, yeah, you're, you're fir- the first casualty on this patrol is going to be your plan, but <laughs> don't break your back trying to carry all this shit out there, man. And that's, I think that's also, that comes with time too, because when, when I were, when I was learning these skills, um, you know, just, just communications gear as an example, communications gear was ridiculous. Everybody in the team was carrying a fucking radio, every single person. And so, yeah, I, like it comes down to, okay, we are literally like, I'm starving number one, because Chow is obviously low on the totem pole when it comes to certain things. Um, but you have all of this mission essential equipment to carry, but now with more advanced equipment, more advanced communications gear, more efficient batteries, things like that, like that load kind of, that load is continuously dropping in weight and you can do that 45 pound load. Whereas I don't think that was possible. Um, for an extended reconnaissance mission back in, you know, the mid nineties, you know, early two thousands when, when I was doing this stuff and it was, it was virtually impossible. Like I had uh, an HF radio, um, which was a PRC one Oh four at that time that ate batteries, like freaking like a fucking dinosaur. Right. Um, it, then we had SATCOM then you had uh, a, a 119 to, to do VHF communications. Then you had a UHF radio. Like it was, it was a lot to manage. And so, yeah, Fieldcraft was a big, was a big deal because now I have to, I have to plan that, but I also have to like re- keep those things concealed when I'm making comm shots and setting up antennas and all the stuff. It's, it's just changed, right? The, 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 the equipment changes and therefore the tactics and the employment methods change too. Yeah, I think, man, honestly, um, a lot of, I think what drives guys to carry all this shit is uh, higher command, mm. right? I mean, they're setting up these comm windows that are like, hey, every two hours, your comm window is going to be open. And we expect comm checks once you get on the deck. And all, I mean, I've, I've, I've gone rounds with... I mean, I was very fortunate. I was a, a force recon platoon commander for nine years and like literally nine years to the day. And there hasn't been many people, there haven't been many people that have done that. So every time we'd get a new company commander, they're like, Hey, how long is it going to be until we start getting information after insert? And I, I would always tell them 18 to 24 hours. And they're like, what? We're not going to hear from these guys for 18 hours. <laughs> You know what I mean? They're, they're, you know, because they'll, they'll start, you know, they'll go into the op order and they'll listen to the plan and they're like, all right, first comm check is in six hours. And if we don't make that, you know, we're fucking, we're going to E&E across the desert for 200 miles. You know, it's like, dude, no, like give the guy some time, you know, like mm-hmm. a comm check every two hours is, I mean, this is, a lot of the stuff that even now, like Paycom wise, it's not, it's not Fallujah, you know, where you're setting up, you know, a hide site and then they're like, everybody's sweating bullets because they think that you're going to get compromised and, you know, 20 minutes actually means a lot in an urban environment, but 20 yeah. minutes in a rural environment or a mountain, I mean, fuck, I can't walk, I can't walk a hundred yards in two hours in some of the yeah. places that yeah. I've been. 
for sure. So, I mean, you see these new guys, the new platoon commanders coming, they're like, where are you at? And we're like, they're fucking 200 yards from where you inserted them, man. Yeah, because they're moving. <laughs> it's been half an hour. But so, I mean, I, I would try to, unless I was trying to specifically focus comm shots as part of the team's training, extend those, extend those windows out give them 12 hours to make movement to wherever they wanted to go you know they another big thing is they set up guys are so used to inserting and then making a straight line to their objective and it's it's really easy to figure out if you exploit the site if you find somewhere where team inserts and you get on their track line for 200 meters and then open your map up and go well they're going to this bridge because it all falls in line so actually using those sustainment skills where you have to find your own water, refill water, maybe take a, you know, a harbor site for you know eight hours uh, in the day with your movement at night, going on a different azimuth to your objective, it actually makes you a way better recon team. Just spending more time in the bush. Mm -hmm. I, I absolutely, I, I, I couldn't agree with that more, man, because you're going to get that experience, but you have to put yourself in those situations and understand what it means um, to like, as in, you know, for us, um, I operated outside of Fallujah. That was my area of operations. And for us, that, I was there during the summertime. And so summertime in the Euphrates River Valley is literally like a fucking oven. And being able to carry water, being able to carry enough water during the day to sustain operations was, was a really big issue for us. Um, and it eventually came down to, we needed to get water pumps. We needed to get water pumps. And because once we, once we learned that, okay, we can jump in and go to like an irrigation canal and pump water at night right? And resupply ourselves using a water pump that allowed us then to, to remain on station for longer durations of time because we would be able to send out a small, a small contingent to a water source, pump water, and then come back to the final firing position of the hide site and be able to uh, continue the mission basically. Because without water, um, it's really difficult, like on a bare open rooftop in you know, central Iraq in August, it's literally 115 degrees on the low end. And I've seen temperatures as, as high as 120 on the high end. You cannot sustain operations that way, much less if you receive contact trying to fight in those conditions without being hydrated. You, people are, that's like, that's, that's not a good thing. Okay. So having that thought process in place and, and identifying those limitations and saying, okay, well, yeah, we need water pumps. Clearly, we need to be able to resupply our own water. So, uh, I remember uh, my workup for Fallujah uh, for my first Iraq deployment, you know, and this is me being green to the sniper community. My seniors trained me for 12 to 16 quarts a person for, a, you know, 48 hours. Like, and as Cody says, you throw that shit on your back. That's not even, that's just water. I mean, that's 30 some pounds of water. Right, thirty-two pounds. It was eight, eight, uh, eight pounds per gallon, right? Roughly, um, two point yes. two per liter. <laughs> yeah, so it's like holy crap, and uh, yeah, like you said, like you, like you can't fight with that on your back. 
it's it's no. crazy it yeah yeah and so i mean i there's this old book it's called uh, a soldier's load the mobility of a nation and it's like on the commandant's reading list and for some reason people read it and they go well our shit's heavier than that <laughs> you know it's like it's science right so like the maximum fighting load that any human can carry is and be like you know like actually functional is 45 pounds mm, okay. uh, and actually if you ever read the book um the mission the team and me uh by uh, a delta force dude he actually talks about that too you know he's like hey i know that i can go forever on 45 pounds he planned some like mountaineering trip and um he made sure that he didn't bust 45 pounds and he crushed this thing that he went on but anyway 45 pounds that's like the magic number you know like hey doesn't matter you know of course like bigger dudes you know can carry you know their percentage of body weight is going to be higher an overall poundage but 45 pounds is still a good functioning load if you're carrying much more than that it's just going to be you know it's it's just not going to work out so well so yeah. even like urban patrols short patrols you know like all right hey a camelback three liters of water if learn your guys if if it's going to take more water or your mission requires them to go farther then maybe you could set something up like a you know like have a you know a mule team as a, as a concept that i used quite a bit to carry um subsurface hide materials in for a team and actually do a majority of the digging for them uh, that way they weren't so smoked because they're carrying plywood and two by fours and shit through the woods it just doesn't work out well for dudes i remember the first time that like like as a sniper student being tasked with digging an overnight hide with four dudes that's like tactically like obviously the exercise is there to to prove a point right and to keep you awake all night long doing labor and, and all the things but like i remember thinking to myself there's no fucking way that this was actually going to ever happen realistically in a tactical environment maintaining you know camouflage concealment um noise discipline it's just not going to fucking happen like it's gonna, you have to do this in in steps um and we learned that watching the insurgency in iraq like digging holes for ieds like that was a multi that was a multi-step sometimes a multi-day process that 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 they would go through to make this happen to avoid detection and so like looking at that from a practical standpoint, it's like, yo, dude, this is not going to work. Like it's great in theory. It's great in concept. But when an actual rubber has to meet the road, it's like, yo, there's going to be a lot of logistical considerations that we need to take a real hard look at. Yeah. I, um, from a subsurface hide point of view, like to me, like a subsurface hide is badass, but it takes a lot of work to actually build a really good one. Uh, and I was able to do it. I actually went to the, it's a course called Arslick. It's a reconnaissance leaders and surveillance course. And um, they're really big on the subsurface hide there. And I hated it at first. Uh, but once I saw the value of having a, a badass hide site, that's literally underground within 50 meters of an objective or hundred meters of an objective. And you have, you know, the majority of a team stuffed in this hole in the ground that, that you know, a truck can run over. It's pretty awesome. But, um, even to that extent, you know, like we dug the holes at Arslick, but most of them were already like 
pre-dug and then filled back in, you know? Yeah, same with us. <laughs> so we weren't like digging into like untouched virgin soil. Yeah. And the same thing with the poles, you know, the poles are all, all cut from trees and people had just like scattered them out like all over the place, you know? Mm-hmm. So we yeah. didn't do a lot of the work. I look at like here in Eastern Washington where my range is, Phil, you've been out there in, in the summertime. You're in, you can barely get a T post in the ground. You know, like you ain't digging in that shit with a shovel. That that's not happening. Oh, there's so, gonna be a lot of rocks, rock excavating. Oh yeah, I mean, and big rocks too, like shit that yeah. like we call it. It's like it's caliche, right? So sometimes even an excavator has a hard time getting through the caliche layers here, the clay and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, man, it's all good insight. So, so let's let's talk about like for the the law enforcement guys, like the urban aspect of things. Um, Cody, I've seen you come up with some really, really cool stuff in, in yeah. urban environments too, uh, because that's really, that's, we learned some seriously hard lessons in, in the urban environment, especially overseas, um, in, in Iraq. So t- talk to us a little bit about your experience doing urban stuff. So, you know, the same, the same things apply, right? You just have to, you have to think uh, a little bit differently. And I, I think we'll probably talk about like ghillie suits here in a little bit, but mm-hmm. In an urban scenario, um, you're really, you're, it's hard for like, you know, a big, you know, red bearded six foot three white dude to blend in like in <laughs> Afghanistan, right? I, I can wear the clothes and shit, you know, but <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, actually, I'll tell you a funny story here real quick was we went to, uh, we got invited to a wedding. It was a local governor. Uh, wedding so I was on the ODB at the time so we <laughs> we we dressed up in our Afghan garb and uh, the thing was like hey you can't bring rifles into the wedding and um, we we're like I was like okay well they didn't say anything about handguns or grenades so, <laughs> so I took this you know like just a typical like Molly war belt I put like 15 grenade pouches all the way around this thing and like put it just like you know, fragmentate. I had a pistol, like one mag and like 15 hand grenades. And I put that on underneath my man dressed. Going to war. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was dark when we showed up. So we roll over in light skin vehicles and we did have rifles and, and, you know, real guns in the car, but, um, we weren't allowed to bring them in. So we just left a guy like on wash in the vehicles and then everybody else went into the, into the governor's compound. But I remember like they were just like frisking everybody as they went through. And I was like the first one in line. And the guy didn't really look at me. He just started frisking me. And I was like, you're not going to like what you find under there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> he looked up and he, he saw that I was, a you know, obviously not a Afghan. So he just waved me through. He knew that he knew that we were coming. But it was just pretty funny. But I got, I mean, I got like maybe like three seconds on him with just by wearing the garb mm-hmm. um and he never you know like he never like made it to like actually find my belt full of frag frag grenades and i was just going to be like chucking over my shoulder as i ran back to my car but right um you know having a a little bit of um an idea of what the culture looks like the way that people act the way that they move um you know that that's a different kind of camouflage that you know, a lot of people don't really have a good, you know, they can't really tune into that. In fact, here in um, the town that I live in, in Fort Collins, a couple of years ago, I went to this um, brewery 
I was there with my family and um, two guys came in they were wearing like plaid shirts, you know, like a couple of days of beard, you know, like, you know, like they were military dudes on a civilian exercise. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember like looking at them, made eye contact with them, just stared at them, (laughs) looked away real fast. And I was like, okay, I got these guys. So I went, (laughs) I actually drew a picture of a dick and found the rental car out in the parking lot and put it <laughs> under the, <laughs> the windshield wiper. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they just didn't fit in, you know, it was like, yeah, people kind of dress like that yeah. here, you know, everybody's pretty fit, you know, but at the same time, like if you have that posture that, um, just sets you aside, you know, people are going to be able to pick you out. And sure. the CEO that I had at the time, he was a, a major, uh, Lebanese descent and you know he was wearing the full Afghan guard he didn't have like a huge beard but he had some stubble on his face he had the hat on and he had like the 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 thing with, that he had was like the beads you know you see the old guys with the beads over mm-hmm. there walking mm-hmm. around like kind of like prayer beads yep and uh, I remember he walked up because there was some American like uh, just regular army guys there and there was a colonel there and he walked up and he was like hey how you doing and the guy was like taken back because he actually thought he was an Afghan. Like his everything about his posture and the way that he presented himself was as an Afghan. Like he had mm-hmm. studied the culture. Um, he he had the you know he had the look going for him for one. There's a mannerisms. There was, there's body yeah. language. There's yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a big part of it. And um, you know, like it's, it's hard for me to replicate in some cultures. That's why I'm, I'm like more comfortable being a greenside guy, like hiding in the woods is a lot easier for me than blending in with a local population, but, you know, paying attention to dress vehicles. Um, and you know, like it's really hard to nail down the perfect vehicle for, um, urban stuff. But if you just take a look at what's out there and things that you don't normally pay attention to, that's probably the vehicle that you want. Yeah. We, you don't want something cool. You don't want like your jacked up fucking Tacoma with your badass rims on it or your spinners right. on your hoopty or whatever fill drives. I don't know. <laughs> we, we had a lot of experience on, on my trip um, with using what we called at that point in time, Trojan horse stuff. Um, some dudes from fifth group uh, that were um, – in in Fallujah at that time, we're us, using it really, really uh, successfully actually conducting operations inside the city of Fallujah. Um, and what we ended up doing, um, we ended up briefing Mattis on the plan um, for us to utilize Trojan horse assets to collect information, um, see what was going on in the, in the Ville, so to speak, when there was no um, official military presence. And then we eventually started utilizing that to insert and extract our teams because that was where we found the most benefit to that, uh, to that tactic was we knew that as soon as we would leave the, the fob, the enemy would know that, that if there was a vehicle that was leaving the fob anywhere close to dark, it was pretty much like, Hey, we know what's probably going to happen. And so what we started to do was just use these vehicles um, and dressing up in the garb, to get ourselves, get our teams out into, into the, into the AO undetected so that they could conduct their reconnaissance and their sniper missions for all those things. But uh, it's a really valid point to, like you said, that guy gave you about three seconds before he was like, hmm, 
you don't look like that. You don't fit. We experience the same thing. Like if you're just driving down the street and you kept a, a, a flow, nobody's going to really pay you any mind. But if you stop, if you have to stop, that's where things can get sketch and you're going to get compromised because it's going to take that dude about, you know, 10 seconds to go. That doesn't look right. Even though your vehicle fits, even though your dress fits, like your body shape and your, your features don't fit right? It's like super easy to pick somebody out that doesn't belong, especially being immersed. Like America, it's different because we're a melting pot of different cultures and races and, and shapes and sizes. But when you're over in that area, that's like everybody in that, in that group is pretty much the same body shape. It's they're the same mannerisms. They dress the same way. Um, it's really, really hard. Like you said, like I'm six foot, I'm six foot tall, lanky ass white boy. Like I don't mm-hmm. fit. So I can put a beard yeah. on, I can paint my face, I can do that, but I'm still not going to fit. You, you know, yeah. it stands out in my mind in terms of like applying that to Libo, like Oceanside and San Clemente, California. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, right. like, it, and so I was going to ask you, Cody, at what point does that institutionalized zing kind of hurt us in terms of natural camouflage when we're told, you know, as a, as an active duty Marine, well, you can't wear flip-flops, you can't wear, well, that's what the locals are doing. And, you know, especially if I'm supposed to, make myself a hard target, but I, I've, I've got to, you know, have a haircut every weekend, got to shave. It's like, you know, most of the local guys are just wearing tank tops and flip flops and board shorts, but yep. I'm, I'm not being allowed to do that, you know? So at, You're at some point, like, that, like we're getting programmed to not be war fighters, not blending with the local populace. I am. So let me say this, the Marine Corps is stupid uh when it comes to that kind of stuff uh i'll I'll tell you straight up and i argued you know like with whoever that wanted to argue with about it but i'm like yeah this policy is dumb uh you're skylining dudes Mm -hmm. and i remember you know when i was in okinawa a couple of years ago the big thing was you couldn't go into the chow hall without a belt on like all right dude i'm wearing board shorts does that mean i have to put a belt on over these yes it does (laughs) it's absolutely ridiculous you know and i've done I've done um, movements, you know, when we went to Morocco where they had us, you know, they gave us, you know, all the, all the BS counter terror bull crap about not standing out. And, and then you get on a bus and desert, desert digis and drive, you know, eight hours in a bus and, you know, every three hours. Yeah. You have to get out and they you just pee on the side of the road and it's like, Oh, well, there's no doubt who those guys are. It's the U S Marines peeing in a ditch on the side of the road. (laughs) But you're doing super special recon stuff. Oh no. It's so (laughs) far from that, but it it was, uh, man, that, that kind of stuff always pisses me off, you know, like the same thing with grooming standards and, I get it. There's got to be a standard, right? And I think the standard, that standard should apply to, you know, the guys that don't do jobs where you go out and have to do surveillance. Sure. You know, there's nothing wrong. Like I haven't had a haircut in probably a month, but it, it doesn't look unprofessional. Right. You know, I don't have like a, a you know, a fucking Mohawk or something. Right. right. You know, and that's the big thing. I always tell the guys, just look professional. You know, when you travel, look professional, you know, don't wear, you know, like your recon hoodie and some sweatpants and shit like that. Just look professional and, mm-hmm. and you're not going to draw any attention to yourself. Just Have a professional like a, haircut. Just like look like a normal human being. That's yeah. You don't need to get a haircut every <clears throat> once a, 
a week. And I, I would tell dude, unless you're I, Phil. I stopped unless doing you're Phil that. with the fade. Oh yeah. Phil's Phil got that fades tight on fade. Fade. I have to, I have to blend in with my local look Asian populace. Okay. <laughs> look at that line. Look at that line. on, uh, Dude. The fuck, man! Hey, I'm getting ready for California. All right, I'm, yeah, I'm you trying, are. I'm, I'm trying to blend back in. down and blend with the homies. Um, so let's, uh, Cody. You mentioned ghillie suits, and so I think this is a good time to talk about that because um, all three of us are in. Are Cody? You're a current contracted instructor for the Marsoc Advanced Sniper Course. Both Philip and myself are former um, basic course instructors. And so we all know that that stalking is always under fire from from command staff because it has a really, really high attrition rate. And I would love to talk about this because um, it was always a really difficult point to get across. And perhaps it was just, you know, my age and my ability to articulate information at that point in time in life because I was in my, you know, early 20s. But understanding that that the fundamentals of stalking, although the exercise itself can be partially impractical, you know, from, from just like a, an, a, an, an initial perspective, but the skills that stalking exercise brings to the individual, like going back to what we talked about earlier in the cast talking about like, Hey, these are individual responsibilities, um, individual camouflage movement techniques, soundproofing your gear, um, thinking about audible compromise, all these things, right? That's what stalking teaches people. And I think it's really hard for commanders to get that through their heads when they look at an exercise that has so much attrition and is the cause of so many failures that they're like, hey, what the fuck is going on? And why are we still doing this? We are not Carlos Hathcock sneaking through a field in Vietnam in 1966, so I'd love to Never hear your happened. perspective. I know. Um, I, I would love to hear your perspective from a commander standpoint. Yeah. All you guys that are listening, that, that's bullshit. It's, it's, it's shit's all bullshit. <laughs> we're we're going to be breaking some hearts right now, guys. It's all right. That's what we're here to do. We're not here to blow fucking smoke and fluff uh, up your ass. So this is real. This is real stuff. Yeah. Like this is real operational sniper stuff. So I, I would say as far as, so stalking. So when we talk about stalking, that's the stuff for everybody that's listening that you see on TV where you have the guy in the ghillie suit and he's crawling up to a certain position and he takes a shot. Um, you could do it live fire or blank fire. We typically, when we're talking about stalking, a stalking exercise, it's done with blanks. Um, and we'll have Phil run through the whole exercise here in a second. Uh, but because he's probably the most current instructor yeah, with it. So he, current. But um, what, what I will say is that stalking is a drill. And the difference, a drill is a proof of skills, right? So when you talk about skills, right, the skills that are tied into a stalking drill, it's individual camouflage, all your movement, your, you know, being able to build a final firing position without being detected by a trained observer. Those are all the skills that you need that tie into a stalking drill. Uh, I think stalking is really important. I think um, the way that we teach it at the school that I work at, it's done very professionally and very, it's done in at increments so that all the student population understands what's going on. And if they fail it, like the guys that I've seen fail stalking, 
they fail it because they don't grasp those concepts. Mm -hmm. And it's even, you know, like even if they get on the struggle bus at the beginning, we're like, I don't really understand this stuff. You know, they can still pull it off by the end because the instruction on the stocking drill is really good. Um, I have seen it go the other way though. You know, like when I went to division pre-sniper at Lejeune, it was like guys came out of the freaking woodworks to bust pigs, you know, on stock lanes. And um, so when I took over as a sniper platoon commander, I was, every time we did a pre-sniper, it was like, Hey, there will be one of you guys out there on the stock lane. And if you get busted, everybody passes. And uh, they it's were like, like that bell, it's like, oh. Philip, it's that bell curve, right? It's, it's the bell curve of, um, of our, of our shooting drills that we're, that we've started to implement at modern day snipers is it's not, um, it's not out of a hundred points. It's about what the instructor does on this particular day with these particular conditions. And that Cody is fucking fantastic to hear that because yeah, if, if an instructor can't pass with a hundred percent, um, then how can we expect all the students to pass with a hundred percent? Yeah, that's a, I mean, it is a, it is a proficiency thing. Like that's a stalking, a stalking exercise is hard. Uh, but you know, by enforcing those things, one of the things that we went back to was like, Hey, you got two dudes on glass. You don't have like 30, you know, guys that have nothing to do today, hanging out in the back of a truck, drinking beer, doing anything else, you know, like busting pigs and thrashing them. Like it's going to be professional. If this is a real thing that we're doing, it's going to be professional. Yep. And, uh, I expected it to stay that way and it did. And I mean, dudes got instructors maintain their skill sets and, um, students learned how to stock. Yeah, that's that was the biggest thing I think for us is um, from being a teacher in that regard. Like I could teach you the fundamentals of stalking. I can teach you the fundamentals of camouflage, the fundamentals of individual movement, how to move slowly and deliberately, how to keep something in between you and the observation post at all times, reference points, all those things. But again, I think it comes back down to that the mindset of the individual in the exercise. And his ability to be a uh, to be a fucking predator because that's really what you're trying to instill in them is to teach you to tap into that predatory instinct that you have and and I'm a firm believer that you either have it or you don't and if you have it the the stalking is going to come to you fairly naturally and if you don't have it I think it can be taught. But the, the time it takes you to learn is going to be is going to be outside your ability to do that in a school environment. Yeah. Let's talk hey, about. Uh, uh, go ahead, Cody. I was going to say, Phil, can you run us down on the way a stalking exercise works? Just so everybody listening at home can kind of get an idea of the way that this drill that we're talking about, what it is. Yeah, so the most recent, I guess, uh, up to date from what I know uh, when I before when I left there in 2018 was um, you had essentially four hours to get within a close proximity of a um, of an OP of the objective where you had two uh, instructors on glass and they had um, this glass with binos and you know per the uh, curriculum or the uh, program of instruction you know the the even the binoculars had to have a certain you know um, threshold right it can't be uh, you know 15 by 56s or whatever I think they had to be like you know, 12 by fifties and stuff like that. Um, or, uh, also in the parameters of, um, uh, vectors, right. Cause we were either using vector, yeah, <clears throat> vectors or, um, image stabilizing binos. Um, so typically the stock lane was anywhere from, um, a, th- uh, 
1500 uh, meters, a thousand meters, um, sometimes only 800 meters, uh, just because of how difficult the terrain to navigate through. So we had, you know, 15 different stock lanes and essentially, uh, you know, the student had to maintain a certain average over those 15 stocks, uh, plus one 100, which showed that he achieved mastery of the whole exercise. Um, it was broken down in, in, in a hundred and, it's been a while, so my, my grading scale might be wrong, but um, essentially it's all individual, right? Um, in, I mean, the tougher it was is when we had a full class of 32 students on stock lanes, right? Uh, with very minimal, um, you know, so if like, if they did really well in marksmanship and then we went over with 32, it was very tough to see all 32 pass um, just because of the stock lanes weren't, designed around having 32 enough. they're not big enough that's right um but anyways uh the objective was to close the distance and get within 300 meters of the objective um to be able to take a shot now when you take a shot it, i don't care if you're in the prone standing kneeling sitting it had to be one of those approved positions obviously with the tripod um but essentially you would um if you got to your position undetected you'd take a shot and then there'd be walkers, which are other instructors um, that would walk up to the student um, and then, you know, place himself about 10 meters away from that student if he took a shot. And then uh, once the walker got in pro uh, close proximity, he'd yell out to the, uh, the uh, OP and let him know, hey, within 10. And then that truck has two attempts to try to walk on that student, try to pick out what they see and stuff like that. If he was compromised, I think that immediately starts off as an 80 um, and they get graded based off of their uh, uh, vegetation. So making sure they have vegetation on their person, uh, on the rifle, and, you know, they have their correct dope, then it's, it's an 80%. Uh, they just don't evac. Ev um, they just don't uh, E&E um, or extract. Now, if the observers do not get uh, the shooter – um, then the, the shooter takes a second shot. Um, and that, at that point they're looking for blasts and stuff like that. And now they have one attempt to walk on the shooter. Um, if they walk on it, that's a 90, if they don't walk it, as long as that shooter is able to extract and also has his dope dialed, uh, he's got vegetation on himself and his rifle, uh, and equipment, uh, then it would be a 100. So that would be a, a full pass on, on the stock. And, and for everybody listening at home, when Phil's talking about actually walking on a, a student, what that means is you have one of the two observers that are in the truck or whatever the objective is that the students are shooting at with blanks. Um, there is another guy or several of them walking around in the field where all the students are. He gets within 10 meters or 10 feet, however you, however you guys are running it. And then when they, when he says walking on, like the guy that's actually on glass has two attempts to make the dude that's standing there, the other instructor, like put his hand physically on yep. the student. Yep. Uh, one thing I've heard to talk about is uh, ID. Um, yep. So the student before the student um, is able to essentially have the ability to get walked on, he has to ID uh, a card that is on the observer and there's a certain threshold in terms of like, Hey, the card has to be this size. Um, and it has to be touching the binos and it can only be up top or 
on the on the bottom in order to simulate a headshot or a center mass center mass shot, right from the uh, observer standpoint. And typically, that was where a lot of sh- shooters would fail is actually trying to ID is because they either wouldn't be able to have burn a good enough loophole um, or they just didn't even see, they saw like the outline of the truck, but didn't actually see the uh, shooters inside or the uh, observers inside. So IDing is a, is a big thing. Yep. Yeah. That was always one the of the, one of the things that we do at the school that I work at is the, uh, the, the two observers, one of the observers on the bottom of his binoculars that are locked into a tripod, there's a license plate. So that way, uh, you know, you get into position, you're essentially taking a shot at the license plate. Um, and then for the ID portion, they will hold up a card. It go, the card goes exactly in front of the license plate. Because uh, I remember like doing stocklands and you're like, yeah, I got this dude. And you take your shot and then he holds a card up like way out to the left. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, Dad, that's outside of my window, man. I can't see what's on it. And they're like, oh, you fail. Yeah. That's dumb shit. That's just... Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk. Let's so let one thing that I did, uh, fortunately, as a cyber school instructor, was go attend um, these uh, live fire or um, cyber competitions. And both for both those competitions, we did live fire, um, live fire stock. So as soon as we took our shot undetected, uh, the walkers or the instructors would plant exactly where our muzzle was at, and then once everyone shot or whatever in the area was clear, we would take the live fire shot to see if we had clearance. Right. And thankfully, uh, both for the two stocks that I did, um, after the fact, uh, uh, my partner and I, we both got hundreds, but if you look back at to what, like the programming and, and, and how the school is set up, I mean, I fucking guarantee you any of the shots that our students have fucking taken absolutely fucking miss. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you don't understand. I think what was it like? We were told um, <clears throat> deflection of your pinky. Of your pinky, yeah, and you're just yeah. like, dude, a blade of grass will deflect your bullet, man. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's there's a lot of myth and there's a lot of stuff that that really like people just didn't take the time to prove because they were just busy saying, well, this is what it is, and so, um, yeah, there's a lot of times where you look at a position and there's like, there's no way you're going to be able to hit a target even at 300 yards from there, like not even not happening. So, um, what would, uh, Cody, what would you say? Like if somebody was looking to improve their field skills or their field craft skills, what would be a, like a, and like, let's just say it's, um, it's a, it's a technology guy. Like we get a lot of technology guys that, that come over from, um, from, from Seattle that want to learn how to shoot. Um, and they're fascinated by this, this whole thing. Um, they want to get outdoors. And I think a lot of our customers, it, we are really unique in the sense that we don't only train, you know, snipers, both military and law enforcement, but we also train people to do hunting, um, and get themselves out into, into nature. There's a lot of people that just really want to get themselves out into nature. What would you say would be the first step that they should take on their journey of learning field craft? Um, you, you know, so I, I think probably the easiest way to start learning some, some skills that would be transferable would be there's, there's actually a sport called orienteering mm. and it's basically a, a land nav race, right? You show up, you get a map 
with different control points on it. And the object is to make it to the most controls uh, with the fastest time. And there's a, there's as many like uh, variations that you can think of uh, can go into orienteering. There's, there's actually one called uh, row gaining, which stands for rugged outdoor game involving navigation and endurance. Those are typically uh, 12 to 24 hour orienteering meets where you get issued a map that has, you know, like 50 to a hundred different control points on them and they're rated by difficulty one to a hundred. So if you find the hundred point control point, then, you know, it's worth a hundred points, but you just have to make it back to the starting line within 24 hours. Uh, I did one of those once. It was pretty brutal. I covered about 62 miles in 24 hours. Um, I would, I would like to do it again, but it, man, it was, it was very painful. Mm -hmm. It was, a, <laughs> you know, because yeah. uh, I ended up getting like second place in it and I didn't run at all. I just walked for, I, I think I stopped at like 22 hours. I was like, I am not going to make it to anymore. But um, orienteering is a, is a really good thing to do. Um, if you want to get more involved in like practical rope skills, uh, there's another sports called canyoneering uh, where basically you start at the top of a canyon and you use different rope anchors and rappelling techniques and, you know, swimming. There's all kinds of stuff that goes into it, but you start at the top of a canyon and you work your way down. I guess you could go up too, but that would be super hard. I'm not right. that hardcore, but uh, I would say if you're looking for two different activities outside that are going to benefit you the most for the long term, I would say canyoneering and orienteering are the two things that I would get into. Yeah, I, I would say the same thing because they're both teaching you like the orienteering thing is teaching you. There's one thing about learning how to how to use a map and compass, but there's another there's another art in learning route planning and effective route planning is is definitely not something that you can get without having tons of experience of making some really painful mistakes and saying yeah i'm not going to do that again like that's that was one of the the key the key components that you know like cody you've been through a selection process and you know what what it I, I haven't been through the same thing that you have, but I also know that, but you put, uh, you put weight on somebody's back and you make them constantly move for a long duration of time. That's going to, that's going to weed out a lot of people from just a, a pure mental standpoint, but yeah. that's where that route planning comes into play and go, yeah, man, like I, I know what, I know what my capabilities are moving across this ground and, like Philip and I experienced that last fall. We were trying to get on a bear that he had spotted. And just, I know that country really well. And, and I looked at Philip and I was just like, all right, man, well, if you want to go, we'll have a go. I know it's, it's, it's going to suck, but this is how long it's going to take us to get there. And we might not even have a chance based upon where that animal is. And again, that's like that route findings, those route finding skills and understanding what it's going to take to move through that particular terrain with the load that we had in the time that we had available to us. And that's a huge thing. And, um, you did a lot of work with the, the original sniper adventure challenge. Did you not? Yeah. Yeah. Me and Zach, uh, we, we set that the first one up. And, and so talk to us about like that. And, and cause I think I want some redemption from that man. Cause you, you know, my, <laughs> you know, my story on that one, but, um, like that was, I was so excited to go compete in that because that's like, that is my thing. That's where I feel most comfortable. Um, and 
I just love the fact that it was basically a steel safari just on, on, on steroids. And so steroids. Yeah. <laughs> when, when you came up with that concept, like walk us through that and, and what you really wanted to, to, to be able to test people on. So that, that whole thing came around. I did, um, um, it was called, uh, the survival trial and it was an event that was held at, uh, the, uh, NRA Whittington center. Um, and it, it, we, we, it was like, they're like, yeah, it's 25 miles. There's all these different shooting stations. There wasn't, you didn't really know a lot about it. Um, uh, the dude that I went with, uh, kid was a stud his name's uh, Aaron and he was training for selection at the time so we were both like on point with our like movement game or navigation game everything was good shooting game was pretty good too and the race was just so poorly organized you know they said 25 miles and we covered over 40 miles in 24 hours um, you know some of the stations were long range range stations that we got to and it was fucking night so you couldn't even see the targets and they're like well you could wait until dawn and we're like yeah but if i just crack off a couple of shots up a bull's ass i'm still going to get the points for participation points according to your rules got it okay (laughs) (laughs) so anyway we crushed this thing uh we got first place and the the prize was we got tomahawks and i was like dude for how much effort we put in we should have got a fucking tomahawk missile that's 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 about (laughs) what it was and uh i I remember just being like so disappointed because like it had the potential of being such an awesome match um but it wasn't so i talked to zach i was like dude i think we could do something like this but just make it not suck and um you know, a big part of that is being able to pre-run the course, actually put some, I remember that from adventure racing, like back in the early 2000s, I was really into like eco challenge, uh, adventure racing type stuff. And I, I typically was the navigator on these teams, but if, if you ever did a course that was not pre-ran, it, it just didn't work out, man. Got it. And, uh, so that was the thing it was like, yeah, we'll, we'll make sure that we pre-run it or pre-run at least portions of it or shoot it, whatever we come up with, we got to figure out a way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the first one, we wanted to like have some rope skills, but nothing necessarily too dangerous. So we just did like Tyrolean traverses where guys would just clip in, you know, they, they had to tie their own Swiss seat clip into it, or they could bring a harness if they wanted to. And then traverse, there was like two. 50 meter traverses that they had to do that. I mean, they're only like 20 feet high. Uh, a, there was some, uh, water procurement, um, that was along the way. And it was basically just horse troughs filled with water. So they had to purify the water. There's no water on the course. Um, but the big crux on this one was land nav. And I knew by, setting up a ton of different land nav courses, I knew like with the moon phase and all this stuff, how if like if the you know if you weren't by if you weren't to a certain checkpoint by like eight o'clock at night you were just gonna get destroyed on land nav because i could arrange the you know with the the moonlight (laughs) so and that's what i did you know so basically we we set up the, the first race with the first event we always called selection and that's to weed out dudes that shouldn't be there um and and it's really kind of a safety precaution, you know, it's like, man, there's, there's, it was the first one that we had ever done. So we had people showing up with like 
80 pound sniper backpacks on um drop holsters you know like fucking body armor with vests go, on and like i'm gonna go be <laughs> i'm gonna go be a sniper yeah i'm doing the sniper adventure challenge so it was a hundred pound litter carry for three miles and that was it you know it doesn't it's for us you know it's not that big of a deal Ouch. but for the uninitiated you know like a guy who goes from like couch to sniper adventure side that's like hard oh yeah and uh it's it, two person teams so you basically like make a litter however you want you hang a duffel bag <clears> 100 <throat> pounds of rocks off on it and you go so um that weeded out like we literally had teams quit in the first three miles because they're like ah this is not what i was expecting i'm like okay good because once you get into the back country uh you know now you become <laughs> now you become a liability dude I, I still spent all night like you know people are like oh, i fell down i don't know where i'm at I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> pull out your gps like they had we, everybody had to have a gps and then we sealed it with like urinalysis tags on it so right and pull it out and use it but i mean there are people that were dude there were some people that were so far i mean they had to have like those hills out there in utah are massive you're right. talking you like three thousand foot yeah you guys did it at uh at sniper country the first time that's right yeah so that it would be like they serious like serious country <laughs> you send like three thousand feet ascend 3000 feet and drop another 3000 feet. They're like in the wrong Valley. Like, That's dude, just... did you not like see Whoa. the, <laughs> Whoa. I know it's dark out, but you had to like known that you were climbing up a hill for That's four a fucking hours. Fuck off mountain right there, bro. <laughs> yeah. And I'll, I mean, that goes into, you know, like your experience. Like if you've never yeah. climbed 3000 feet, you don't know how long 3000 feet is going to take. You don't know what yep. 3000 feet feels like. Yep. So, but yeah, you know, we wanted a match that wasn't necessarily going to be just a test of shooting skills and, you know, badass race guns. It was going to be more of a test of the person and his ability to use it all, put it mm -hmm. all together within, mm -hmm. you know, like a team concept. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I think I'm actually going to try to run the next one with my son. He's 13, but he's like hardcore. So yeah, man, Landon's uh, a gangster. He is, man. He's, um, He's, he's shooting really well. You know, he got seventh in state cross country. He's never really carried a pack before, but I figure that's what I would be there for. Sure. Carry most of the stuff for him. Use that old man strength. That's right. But yeah, you know, that, that's it. You know, it's just get out there. And then, and then Zach always puts in these, like, I actually hate these things because I'm not a nerd. So <laughs> <laughs> the cryptology stuff, the crypt. The, yeah, yeah. Like the code breaking. So yeah, like none of your stuff, none of your grids come to you as like a grid. You actually have to <laughs> figure out how to use the, the cipher that he creates and like break the code. Uh, some um, guys are really good at that, but I'm just yeah. like, ah. Zach. No, man, I love it though. I love that aspect of it because like, I mean, we started this podcast talking about like what really is, what defines field craft and, and it's really hard, I think, to, to put a finger on what defines fieldcraft because it's a it's a it's a holistic view of of self reliance. Um, like as an like when I when I drive up to a trailhead and I put a ruck on and I'm and I you know lace up my boots like I'm at home. Like I am I am very comfortable in that environment. I'm it's just like walking out my front door. Um, or even walking through my front door, 
and I'm pretty comfortable in just about every environment. I don't have a whole lot of experience in jungle environments outside of what I did in the military briefly, just because I don't have a whole lot of jungle environments around me, but everything else from like desert to temperate to, you know, from to, to Alpine stuff to above tree line stuff, like I'm pretty comfortable in all those environments and I understand what it takes to move through those environments and the precautions or not necessarily the precautions, but, um, the planning considerations that come into play with being able to conduct that, that type of movement. And I've, you know, uh, you know, Cody, you know, I've, I've had some experiences with, with people in the mountains where, where it's just like, whoa, um, like people getting really, really scared about, about the situations and, and not understanding how to manage their fear or not really understanding how to manage their own personal capabilities. Like these things are very real and that is all about field craft. That's all, it's all together. Um, and I think that the more we talk about this stuff, uh, I think it should be a regular thing. And I, we kind of covered a whole overarching broad scope of field craft, but I think if we start narrowing it down and saying, okay, like, from a navigation perspective, this is it. Cause I mean, I've learned so much stuff from you from just little navigation things like that. Um, you've got a lot of experience navigating back East in relatively flat ground where terrain association is not possible all the time. More often than not, it's not possible. Fucking non-existent. <laughs> yeah. So like, like navigating in, on, you know, Camp Lejeune and Quantico and in Georgia and places like that, where you are in dense timber and you cannot see, you have to use dead reckoning skills. Um, and I learned a lot of that stuff too from flying airplanes, being an instrument rated pilot, learning how to fly dead reckoning, um, dealing with winds and, and um, dealing with drift and all those things. Um, nautical navigation too, things like that. Would, um, I think continuing to narrow those things down and, and to help people understand more uh, details on field craft, it's, I think people really want to know. And they're looking for people to teach them how to do it. Yeah, man, uh, navigation stuff is fun. You know, when yes. uh, um, when I went to uh, combat dive school, they actually the the navigation there is super simple, right? It's uh, when you when you talk about like a combatant diver, like all you're doing is like transiting subsurface. You're going from like a boat to a dock or to whatever the objective is, or you're going the other way out. So really the, the only kind of dive that you do there is just, it's dead reckoning. You get, you'd get in the water, you take an azimuth, you go subsurface and you just stare at that compass and try to maintain like a good straight body position and follow your azimuth all the way to your objective. Um, one of the first things that we did, um, they talk about contour dives there too, like actually contouring, like at a certain depth, mm. um, but around, you don't really get around it. subsurface structure or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, one of the things that we, uh, one of the things that we did when I got back to the unit was we did, um, an advanced dive, dive nav profile, which means it has two legs. So we entered the water, we went on an azimuth for a certain distance and then we changed azimuth and I knew that I was looking for a contour line in the sand at a certain depth. So once I was like 12 feet or something like that, and then we followed that contour line all the way into like a tiny, tiny little Harbor, like the size of a, like your average living room, mm. because that was the deepest channel where we could get the closest to the tree line. And that's how like looking from the, you know, doing that pre-planning, looking at the, um, 
the sad imagery. We could see that the water was blue almost all the way up to the tree line. It was just mm. a navigational process to get there. And we crushed it, man. And just by doing like contouring, like basically terrain association underwater at night was, I mean, you're just using all the right tools for it, but that's cool. Yeah, navigation is cool. I love it. Mm. Yeah. I learned, I learned, a, yeah, I learned a lot from, you know, being a, being an instrument pilot too. Like as soon as, I'm sure it's very similar to, to go on subsurface where it's like, you can't see anything. Like you can't see anything. And in, in the sky, it's the same thing. You know, you fly into a cloud, it's literally nothing but white. And it's, it's terrifying. Like the first time you do it, because you're just like, Oh shit, I literally can't see anything. And I have to rely completely and solely on this, on my knowledge of navigation and these instruments to fly the airplane where it needs to go. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's absolutely it's absolutely awesome skills. Like when the navigation piece is, is like you said, it's a ton of fun. So, yeah, man, I think let's talk a good, about a, yeah, go you ahead. want to talk about ghillie suits here for a little bit? Sure. Yeah. What do you got on ghillie yeah. suits? Well, why don't you guys, so you guys have spent way more time in a ghillie suit than yeah. I have. So why don't you give us a rundown on what a ghillie suit is for, I mean, yeah. I'm sure a lot of people know, but, uh, so what it, what it is and what it is what it is not. Exactly. Yeah, I, I like that conversation. What go it is it, and what Phil. it is not. Uh, well, so a ghillie suit is. Uh, you, you want to talk history? Yeah. Yeah. Briefly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If if I can remember correctly, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it it was originally used by Scottish gamekeepers, uh, right, for poaching. Mm -hmm. um, correct. And to to pretty much you know uh, camouflage from themselves from poachers. Uh, and stuff like that. And actually, um, after doing some uh, studies on it, Gilly, the, the way we uh, spell it now is actually incorrect uh, spelling of it originally. It was supposed to be just be G-I-L-I-E, but we spelled it G-H-I-L-L-I-E. Yeah, they were Gillies. They were, they were called yeah. Gillies. They were, they were like, they were combating poachers and, and counting game up yeah. in the Scottish yep. Highlands. Um, so we use it now as a, as a tool to help us stock in our individual camouflage. And what it immediately is not is a, a freaking invisibility uh, cloak, right? You know, when you, when you put a ghillie suit on, you know, it doesn't Im immediately make you invisible to, um, obviously your surrounding areas. And I think, um, the very first thing that a ghillie suit is supposed to do is break up your outline as a human per a, a person, which is your five V's. Right. If you don't know what your five V's are, it's pretty much your your neck uh, to shoulder junction underneath your armpits, and then um, uh, underneath your crotch are your five V's. Right. So it's supposed to help uh, break that up. And uh, let's talk about construction of a ghillie suit and the color of a ghillie suit. Uh, Cody, you were sending us some pictures, which is actually was pretty interesting in terms of like contrast, right? Mm -hmm. um, but. Uh, you know, what, what I was taught and what we usually teach is that you can always go lighter, the lighter, the better, because you can always, you can always go darker, but you cannot start with dark and then go lighter. It's, it's not impossible, but it's a lot harder to do in terms of when you start adding vegetation onto your, um, your ghillie suit. Now there's always a balance between, okay, how much jute, um, or like burlap or, or, um, artificial vegetation or, you know, uh, or camouflage I'm putting onto the ghillie suit and garnish garnish. Yeah. Garnish uh, or uh, 550 cord to strap on um, natural vegetation. 
And actually, I would say, again, just goes with experience. My very first ghillie suit, I was, I mean, I was a burlap monster, right? And then you learn real quick, well, actually, you know, having natural vegetation is more important. So then my burlap eventually got switched to more uh, like paracord 550 to be able to uh, tie on natural veg based off my surroundings. You know what I wish I would have known back then, Cody? Like the ultimate yeah. rubber band to girth hitch for veg is li- like parachute. a parachute parachute line still. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, dude, these are the perfect size. Um, yeah. And they're the big, they're the right strength. Loft over there, so <laughs> I looked out. So um, yeah, dude, the ghillie suit, like what, so the, I think there's a, there's a difference between a, a school ghillie suit, like, um, uh, like a game ghillie suit versus an operational ghillie suit. Um, a game ghillie suit is going to be something that you're going to teach somebody the fundamentals of individual movement, individual camouflage, and how to properly vegetate themselves to match their environment. Whereas on the operational side, a full ghillie suit is not necessary. Um, and, and we really shouldn't be exposing ourselves to, to requiring the need for a full ghillie suit unless it's a very specific application like Cody's talking about, like a, like a hide uh, not even necessarily a subsurface hide, but um, a uh, a surface hide that requires some sort of covering or netting. There's there's another play to that, but the individual use, like we found the cobra heads or the the, the viper hoods, which is basically yep. just like a a hood over your head and your shoulders to, like you said, Phil, break up that outline of the the top V there between your head and your shoulders. That's a big deal, <clears throat> um, and then your armpits. So we found those to be way more uh, useful. But then the other thing that we found to be more useful was a de- just a radical departure from the ghillie suit itself was just taking over whites and then using paint and dirt or, you know, earth from the surrounding area and coloring those in a manner that would look natural because now we're working with the natural shadows. If we have some like really big baggy material, the natural shadows, and if we paint them, and color them appropriately for the environment, it's going to perform just as good as a ghillie suit because I can't really use a burlap ghillie suit in the desert. It's just not going to match. So we have to understand the concept of what the ghillie suit is and then apply those theories to other methods of personal camouflage. Uh, Depending on the environment that you're uh, operating in as well, right? Like, cause you, like said, I mean, it was like, it was retarded when we got 20 palms, everyone's bringing, in Camp Pendleton ghillie suits mm-hmm. and it was like I mean you know after our first I remember my first one I was like why are we wearing these it's right. like I'm I'm on the side of a of a white hill and I'm I'm dressed in burlap this is fucking retarded so Cody I want to know more about that about those color swatches that you sent so talk to yeah. us about that that's I think that's super uh, really cool to, to so yeah I actually have so I actually brought them up here so um for most of the is this like can people like play the video of this or is it just a just we a can. podcast yeah we can we can actually put a, a a video of this on youtube okay so um the swatches that i sent uh Kalen and phil and because i've i've heard this before like hey build your base in a lighter color and then garnish in darker color mm-hmm. And I would, I would say I've always gone the opposite of that. And it's because of the way that the human eye works. And so what I have, what I'm showing uh, Phil and Kalen here is I have um, a dark green echo hard card with three pasties on it. I have a white pasty, a black pasty, 
and a brown pasty. So it's pretty, so I've got the green side out right now. So asking these guys like, hey, if you had to zero with iron sights at 25 meters on one of these pasties, which one did you pick? I'd pick the white one. Yeah, it's, it's easy to see, right? Yep. Yeah, because it pops. Lighter colors pop towards you. So this is what it looks like on the brown side. So some guys might actually pick black on this, but if you think about your front sight post is black, you're probably not going to get a good sight picture. Your crosshairs are black. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the things that I've noticed since I started doing a lot more training lately. So I pulled out um, one of my old Schmidt vendors with a P4 fine reticle. Dude, I could barely see that thing when I'm trying to shoot paces, man. Yeah. So I have to like turn the parallax way off so I can actually see the fucking crosshair on the black pasty. So mm -hmm. I started shooting white pasties because it's easier. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so the white pasty on the brown side sticks out. And so a lot of people might say, well, uh, that's not, you know, you're never going to be in an environment totally like that unless you're like in the white sand desert, like Phil was talking about earlier. But even like if you have like something that's this, like I just painted it camouflage, which is a real shitty job on it, but it pretty much matches even the environment behind me. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you can still see that the white pasty is the one that stands out the most. The lighter color stands out the most. And even on this camouflage swatch, I would say the brown one stands out the second most and the black one is still harder to see. Mm -hmm. so <clears throat> what that challenge is is the paradigm of making your base gilly in a lighter color rather than making it starting yep. off in a, that makes in a green color yeah um and the way that so the whole i'll just talk about like some general camouflage concepts here so the word uh camouflage is actually a french word it means to trick or to play a trick on someone to fool someone um so when we talk about a field craft perspective of camouflage. So general rule of thumb is the human eye can distinguish a one MOA object at a hundred yards with sharp contrasts and background. Meaning if I have a white sheet of paper or a white target board, I can see a black pasty at a hundred meters or a hundred yards. Same thing. If I just inverse that uh, white on black, black on white, it doesn't matter. So what you're really trying to do with any sort of camouflage is break up, um, break that one MOA barrier to the human eye. So really like when I'm talking about like gear and camouflage, like, so actually, so you guys can see this, right? This camouflage yep. here. It's Rhodesian pattern. Yep. So up close, this is a shitty camouflage, right? You're like, what the hell is that? But if you looked at the size of this, all right, this is about the size of my hand. Mm -hmm. So like we'll skate six, six inches. So six MOA pattern. So at 600 yards, this shit is really good. Yep. And this is the kind of environment that they were fighting in three to 600 yards. So you're trying to break up objects smaller than that one MOA. So it's, it has to do a lot with the environment that you're working in. So a ghillie suit, I mean, if you do a really good ghillie suit, you're looking at, you know, you can be within 100 meters of the objective and be camouflaged. You know, you shouldn't be able to pick out any one thing that's bigger than an inch on a properly done ghillie suit. Uh, so if you look at camouflage patterns in general, um, look for ones that um, – match what you think your operational environment is you know so i have no problem wearing that rhodesian camouflage because i know how to shoot 
from 600 yards. So, well, so that, that brings a great point, Cody, because, because now, like, if we look at, if we look at camouflage trends from a commercial standpoint now, um, it's like, it's, it's almost like who's got the sexier pattern, right? Yeah. It's got to look super sexy and it's got to look super cool. But then the reality of it is, is you get out to that 300 meter mark and beyond, you literally look like a brown blob. It doesn't do anything. It mm-hmm. all blends together and, and it doesn't, it doesn't do anything. And actually the bigger blockier patterns are more effective at breaking up your outline than the super fine detailed patterns that, you know, marketing images, they look really cool because the camera guy gets that perfect angle and the perfect lighting and, and it, and it showcases the product, but that's only one situation at one distance under one lighting condition in one environment. And right. so I find more, I find it more difficult. Now I, I wear solids. I, I try to wear more solid than anything. Basically, basically earth tone solids, grays, browns, khakis, uh, things like that, that, that hell, even sometimes a, a, a light blue can break up like a grayish light blue can break up an outline really, really well. Um, depending on the, yeah, especially on, on in the Alp, Alpine environment, hundred percent. Yeah. And so, um, I think under people understanding that, especially from, from snipers and reconnaissance, uh, men that are, that are listening to this podcast, like learn how to make your own camouflage and don't always rely on some sort of commercial store about stuff because it's not always going to be effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and just really learning to break up those, you know, like if you can distinguish an object at a certain distance, learning how to break that up, like blend in, like, you know, like the old Mac V saw guys would actually spray paint. They would put all their gear on, you know, and you know, in the early days of Mac V saw, all they had was OD green. So everything was OD green. They would put all their gear on and then they would spray paint, you know, so it all looked like it was just mixed together. It wasn't, um, you know, like you have this badass camouflage uniform and then you put your coyote brown ruck strap shirt straps over it. And it's like, Oh, that's a, big ass fucking brown rucksack that dude's wearing exactly yeah no so the ghillie suit thing is is like like you said and then using like the smocks and stuff like that we had we had a lot of good we had a a lot of good luck using smocks which basically like i made my ghillie suit my base ghillie suit out of the old 90s ir desert parka Mm -hmm. i wanted one that i could pull over so that way, you know, when you're playing the stupid fucking ghillie suit on ghillie suit off games, like I could, I could get it on easier and take it off easier. But at the same time, the base color is that darker. It's a little bit darker. Um, and I, I was successful with it and I, I still have it. It's in the shop right now. And um, I thought it was a great base to use because it was large. It was bulky. It was designed to break up your outline at night in a desert environment. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to, that's what I'm going to use. It had an, it had an, uh, it had its own hood. So that was really a nice thing to have. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I like that. Yeah. And you can, um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of ways to, to get a ghillie suit. I think your first one, you should definitely try to make one. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't, if you've never actually seen one or put your hands on one, there's actually a company called Tactical Concealment. Mm-hmm. Um, the dude there has been making uh, ghillie suit platforms for, I don't know, 20, 25 years. Um, but they, the, originally, the only way to get a ghillie suit was you would make one. All right. And it typically starts, you're making a schoolhouse ghillie suit. So you're gluing 
um, canvas onto the front so you can low crawl and then you're sewing ghillie netting onto the back of it so that way or gill like fish gill netting onto the mm -hmm. back of it so you can tie your garnish onto it but um tactical concealment started making these platforms and he's the same guy who came up with the viper hood which you said is just like a hood connected to two sleeves that you can throw on and break your outline up um he they make really solid platforms um i actually have some that i want to get broken in my kids are building them out right now it's pretty cool but if you've never seen a, a ghillie platform that's a good example of where to start on how you would want to make one homeschooling um, at the, homeschooling at the carroll residence yeah <laughs> so <laughs> the other you know phil brought up a good point too talking about like going into an environment where they had to bring ghillie suits uh that didn't match the environment you know so a lot of those environments that you go into like i've never i i'll be the first one to tell you i've never worn a ghillie suit or a Viper hood operationally as a sniper. Um, in Afghanistan, we wore multicam, mm -hmm. which is about the best camouflage you can buy. And that stuff is awesome. And applying a little bit of field craft, you know, like taking a bush, you know, tying that to my tripod in front of me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it damn near makes you invisible to the objective. I'll, I'll get some good pictures out later on some of the, some of those old Afghan stuff, but yeah, yeah the, um, having the proper camouflage pattern in the environment that you're, that you're going to will go a long way. And it's, there's something else too. I always told my guys, I was like, Hey, you can wear whatever you want as long as it makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know? So guys are like, Oh, they go out and they buy like a couple of dudes bought like Carhartt pants, you know, like, Hey, whatever, you know? And then some guys buy like all these crazy REI lightweight pants. And, um, as long as it like matches the environment, I'm totally cool with it. But the other thing that you need to check is throw on a set of NVGs because a lot of times, a lot of the garments that the military uses, they're IR treated. So when you put your NVGs on, that shit still looks invisible. It looks like the mm -hmm. environment. But sometimes you have a guy, he might be wearing like a green pair of pants that matches the environment daylight to the naked eye. You put your NVGs on, it looks like they he's glow. wearing like glowing pants. Yeah. Because of that light that they catch, like the ambient moonlight. Yep. Um, it's like so it reflects other it. other things that you got to check too. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I think this is all, I think this is all really good stuff. This is a fantastic podcast, man. We covered a lot of ground. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Sorry about yeah. the connection in the beginning. No, it's all good, man. It's all good. We got it squared away. You're, you're, you're five by now, man. Crystal yeah. clear. Five by five. People and, uh, probably don't even know what that means. Nah. Phil, do you know what five by five means? I know what <laughs> five and 25 mean. No. <laughs> 25 and five means. That's an old radio thing. It's like your signal strength. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So when you somebody got, says, I have you five by five. You remember, you, remember, you remember communicating over DME using the old like text on the DMEs, like using the, the code? Oh, man. There's no. Old school shit. On, uh, are you talking about the, on the 150 HF? Oh, dude, you this can is pre-150, like pre bro. This is oh, pre-150. Yeah, so it would have been on the 104. It was on uh, a 104. Which was a good radio. It was. It was you get, I get calm across the world, that thing. Slope and V yeah, at the right wavelength. stuff, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They, right on, um, guys. I mean, this is badass. I think we should, can, I think we should make this at least like a, at least kind of probably maybe like a, a monthly, if not a quarterly topic that we discuss on the podcast for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, a lot of people cool. ask for it. Oh, 
Yeah, Cody, I appreciate uh, you helping us out on the on the last few social posts for um, Field Fieldcraft Friday. If you guys haven't yeah. been checking out our Instagram, um, the last two Fridays, Cody's been um, putting some really great tips on there in terms of um, mountaineering, utilizing rope and, and knots, uh, which again, you know, uh, I, I think is a definitely super important aspect to the the modern day rifleman. And uh, I love your OSOC, even on your personal page, your OSOC your OSOC drills <laughs> dude I, I remember the story that you you posted about i tried an OSOC with skis today <laughs> yeah That's, what did i say yeah the OSOC you, you on tried skis. an OSOC on skis oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cody's like you're like the perfect blend of of seriousness but uh, but just fucking off at the same time oh yeah i mean i dude i love to i love to Gotta train have fun. i, I yeah, and that's the thing is, I, I mean, a lot of guys join the military today and they're like, oh, it just sucks, you know, I don't do anything, you know, and I'm like, well, if you spend less time in your barracks room playing video games and, and get out there, I mean, in uh, I'll just say this once. So I had the, I had the good fortune of going on a UDP to Okinawa uh, a couple of years ago and I hadn't been, hadn't been there in like 20 years and Initially, I was like, ah, I fucking hate Okinawa, man. And uh, dude, I went back with a different attitude and I loved it. You know, it was like every, every dude, I, I got worked out like four hours a day, you know, so PT, get up super early PT, uh, at lunchtime, go swim in the ocean, you know, <laughs> you know, you had some night, badass experiences, man. Those dude some, it, yeah yeah i mean we got to do so much fun stuff and it was just i think it was just a different attitude and i think a lot of people you know this goes for life in general you know like if you have a job that you think sucks get out of it man yeah. <laughs> you know like right i know that seems i mean i had i had one i wouldn't say it sucked you know i was i was on the fire department for a year it was a good job but i it just wasn't me you know mm -hmm. i mean I like to walk around in the woods and you got to follow your path, man. People <laughs> yeah. got to follow your path. It's a, it's a real thing, you know? And, um, it's, uh, it's, that kind of goes into like our headspace hub type stuff, but it's a real thing and it can, it can drastically affect the, the way you conduct yourself in everyday life, uh, based upon your mindset. Yeah. Um, you knowing should have Cody do a headspace hub. I think yeah. that'd be pretty neat. Yeah. It'd be badass, man. For sure. Let's do that. So, well, Cody, man, thanks for coming. We're, we're, uh, we're hitting up on an hour, an hour and a half mark and we oh, just, shit. we had some Blue great, pie. great conversation, man. Seriously. I mean, I think people are going to get a lot out of this, especially our, our military guys and our law enforcement guys, and especially our hunters too, that are looking to, um, up their game when it comes to the field craft aspect of things. And we'll, we'll make this a regular thing. So, um, for those of you guys that are listening, uh, we really appreciate y'all. Thank you for, for still following us and we're constantly growing the reach and, um, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be able to do this without you guys' support. So thank you very much. And Cody, thanks for your time, man. It's always a pleasure. We're looking forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks, right? Yeah. I'll be out there for uh, long range 201. Fantastic. Awesome. man. It's going to be a badass time and I'm looking forward to seeing you. I haven't seen you in a long time, dude. Yeah. It's been two years, dude. Yeah. So. It's going to be fun working with you. I heard about you guys' uh, Boston class, so. <laughs> <laughs> he might have heard. He might so have as long as you don't little. get offended with me fucking with you, then, <laughs> then it will be fun. He might have heard a little too much, Cody. <laughs> <laughs>
no, this is awesome. Thanks, Cody. I appreciate you. And uh, we'll see you guys. You guys know the drill. Keep your face on the gun and see you guys next time. All right, guys. Check out uh, moderndayrifleman.com if you haven't already done so. You're kind of fucking up in life if you're not there. So check it out. Hope to see you. Later.